This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQV with expert advice from CPA attorney and retirement and estate planning expert, Jim Lang, the best-selling author of Retire Secure and the Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Now on the air and online worldwide at retiresecure.com, get ready to talk smart money. Hello and welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. I'm your host, Hannah Haytanen Kay, and of course I'm here with Jim Lang, CPA, attorney, and best-selling author of the first and second edition of Retire Secure, and now his new book, The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Jim's guest tonight is favorite financial writer, Jonathan Clements. For 18 years, he was the top personal finance columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Jonathan has been on Good Morning America, The Today Show, and CNN, and is author of The Little Book of Main Street Money, which is filled with both traditional wisdom and great new ideas. Some of the key beliefs of Jonathan's financial philosophy may surprise you. With all the economic uncertainty present today, we will discuss what we can be fairly certain about and what we can control to improve our financial situation. Jonathan is an engaging and entertaining speaker, and we are thrilled to have him back on the show. But before I turn it over to Jim, I want to remind our listeners that the show is live, so please feel free to call in with your questions for Jonathan. The number is 412-333-9385. Again, that is 412-333-9385. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Hello. Good afternoon to you. It's great to have you. I will also take the liberty of saying a couple things, which is Jonathan Clemens is my favorite financial author. He... uh, for 18 years, he wrote wonderful columns for the Wall Street Journal and one great source of information, if you're interested in column format, is actually getting the archives and reading through them, and particularly for the last five years, which is more current, wonderful information. And then, um, if you want to make it a lot easier on yourself and have the information in a well-organized uh, form, uh, Jonathan's book, The Little Book of Main Street Money, is it's my favorite financial book. It's it's wonderful. It has great financial information. And Jonathan does a very good job of combining some of the humor, human elements of investing and and living with the financial as, estimates. Um, so anyway, it's a, it's, it's a great pleasure to have you on, Jonathan. Thanks so much for agreeing to be our guest. Sure thing, Jim. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And today... Um, I understand that there were some some specific things that you wanted to talk about in in terms of things that we can control and things that we can't. So I think I'm just going to, if it's okay with you, just give you the open mic for a little bit. I'll certainly pipe in because I'm sure I'm going to have some comment on whatever you bring up. But I thought that I would I would um, throw, throw the mic over to you and, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about things that we can control, things that we can't, and and some of the things that our our readers and listeners can do in terms of ac- actionable steps. Sure thing, Jim. I mean, one of the uh, one of the things that we've had this year has been a pretty wild financial market. This juncture, the S P five hundred has pretty much forced itself to a draw, but we do have a ten percent decline in developed foreign markets. We've got emerging markets off about fifteen percent. Clearly, it's been a pretty turbulent year. There's been a lot of economic news to worry investors. We've had the downgrade of U.S. Treasury debt. We've had all the turmoil over in Europe. There's been concern about the quality of municipal bonds. I mean, all in all, it's been 
a wild and crazy year. And one of the things that investors tend to do when we get wild and crazy years like this is they turn into market forecasters, people who built these portfolios and said to themselves, I'm going to hold this mix of stocks and bonds from here to retirement. Suddenly, they become day traders. They start buying and selling like crazy, trying to figure out where, whether the Dow is going to rise or fall tomorrow. And clearly, this isn't a sensible way to behave. So what I would suggest to listeners is that what they do is they step back, look at the big picture, and think about the stuff that they really can control and try to ignore the stuff that they can't control. Clearly, the stuff they can't control is the direction of the financial markets. They'll go whatever direction they want to go in, and none of us can influence what happens there. But there are four key things that we can control. One, we control the amount that we save every month. People I meet who have managed to amass significant wealth, almost all of them are great savers. Being able to delay gratification and socking away a decent portion of your paycheck every month, that is the key to building wealth. Second, we can also control the amount of investment costs we incur. Uh, clearly, if you buy a lower-cost mutual fund or you're a little bit more careful about how much you trade, you're going to reduce the amount that you lose to investment expenses each year, and that should allow you to retain more of whatever investment gains you manage to earn in any particular calendar year. Second, we can control our investment tax bill. This is something, Jim, you know a lot more about than I do. But clearly, by being careful about how much we trade in our taxable account, thinking careful about what investments we hold in our taxable account, making full use of tax-sponsored retirement accounts, we can reduce the amount that we paid Uncle Sam each year. And once again, we can thereby amass more wealth for ourselves. And then finally, the last thing that people should really focus on, and maybe this is right up there with the amount they save on a regular basis, is they should think carefully about how much risk they take. Simple example, if you're a technology executive, you work for some big software company, clearly you want to think about how do you diversify your human capital. You're already heavily exposed to the technology business. Clearly you don't want to go out and buy a whole bunch of tech stocks and, and build down on that risk. Instead, as you build your portfolio, you probably want to build a portfolio that's relatively light on technology and instead has exposure to other parts, other industries so that you are well diversified. And furthermore, as you build that portfolio, you probably want to have you know, a decent amount of exposure to cash investments and to bonds so that when we have a rough year like we've had in 2011, that you don't get so badly hit. So those are the four things, the four tenets that I would focus on, the four things you really can control, the amount you save, the amount you pay in investment costs, the amount you pay in taxes, and the amount of risk you can take seem reasonable to you, Jim? It, it does. And what's very interesting to me is some of the things that you said uh, were similar to what you said in your book. And one of the things, I almost thought it was almost a revelation it was so good in your book. When you talked about asset allocation and the risk that you were willing to take, one of the points that you made was that it's whatever your asset allocation is in terms of stocks and bonds and then the subcategories that it's usually better to start with an asset allocation model and stick with it rather than constantly shifting your asset allocation as the market shifts. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't rebalance because that's not what you were saying at all. But what you were saying was, is don't be, don't be an aggressive investor, lose your shirt, and then all of a sudden be conservative because then you're not going to get it on the way back up. So I think that that's 
similar to what you were talking about in terms of um, asset allocation and de determining how comfortable you are at different levels of risk? It's really an important point. I mean, one of the things that we, we learn as we talk to people about their finances is that risk tolerance is not stable. The portfolio that people are comfortable holding during a rip-roaring bull market is going to be far more aggressive than the portfolio they're comfortable holding in a year like 2011. And so what you want to think about when you put together that initial mix of stocks and bonds is how are you going to feel when the market is down 20 or 30 or 40 percent? Are you still going to be happy with this mix of stocks and bonds? Because if you're not, then you shouldn't buy that mix because the one mistake you don't want to be making is investing heavily in stocks and then having second thoughts when the market is down steeply and panicking and selling at the worst possible moment. Yeah, one of the pieces of standard piece of advice that we hear out there is that you should have a more aggressive portfolio when you're younger, and then as you approach retirement, you should cut back on risk and, and move more towards conservative investments. And in general, that's right, but I would throw in one caveat, and caveat into that, which is this. When you're in your 20s, you really don't know how much risk you can tolerate. You've never lived through a bear market. You just don't know how you're going to react when the market is down 30 or 40 percent. So maybe when you start out as an investor in your 20s, you should actually be a little bit more conservative, get your feet wet, find out what your tolerance for risk is when the market is at its roughest, and then you'll have a pretty good guide to how you should invest going forward. And the other, the others, the second quote of Jonathan Clemens that I'm going to say, in effect, I'm quoting you, is you said something to the effect that you can fill out all the risk questionnaire uh, that that any financial advisor might give you, but one of the best ways to truly measure risk is how did you feel in 2008 when you lost your shirt. That, that that might be, I mean, if you walked around miserable and you just hated life because you were losing so much money, it doesn't almost matter what you fill out on the questionnaire. You don't have a very high risk tolerance. And I thought that that was a very good insight. I don't know if you, <laughs> I don't know if you remember these things, but I do. And 2008 and early 2009 were an extraordinary time, and it was a great test of investors' tenacity. I mean, I can't tell you, Jim, how many seasoned investors I heard from who were absolutely scared out of their wits by what was going on. And it was understandable. I mean, we did have a true financial crisis going on. You know, it did feel like we were on the verge of economic Armageddon. And a lot of people I know who I consider to be level-headed, long-term investors did indeed sell. And I'm sure they're keeping themselves today. Yeah, and, and that's, that, that goes back to the original point that I brought up that, that again, is quoting you, which is um, deciding on your asset allocation and not shift your, your belief or your risk tolerance um, radically based on what the market is doing. Now, if your life circumstances are different, that's another thing. And also... The other thing that, that another one of the gems, and by the way, I have a, a, a whole bunch of them in, in your book. If you looked at my co my copy of your book, it's all, there's a whole bunch of stars and underlines and everything else. Is it, you were saying, just very similar to your advice that a tech stock, 
employee should, I'm sorry, should not be invested in tech stocks because if, if that sector goes bad, you lose your job and you lose a lot of investments. And you were also saying that you should take a look at what else is going on with your financial life in picking your portfolio. So for example, if you are a teacher or a government worker or even an employee of a company that has a traditional pension plan where you are going to get so much money per month or per, per year, and if you are collecting Social Security, that that's a little bit like a bond or a guaranteed income, which would mean that you could have a, a greater risk tolerance and a longer-term investment horizon for some of the other investments. And I just thought that that, that was such a good good thought. Yeah, no, clearly if you, if you have that fixed pension, it does indeed free you up to be more aggressive with with the rest of your portfolio. Another sort of insight that I think is worth considering is your bond portfolio versus the debts that you have. You know, we all tend to engage in mental accounting, and we think that we have our investment portfolio over here, and then we have our debts over somewhere else. But really, your debts and the bonds that you own are just mirror opposites of each other. The bonds are paying you interest, the debts that you have are costing you interest. And in all likelihood, the debts are costing you more interest than your bonds are earning you. So if you're looking at your overall financial life and you're saying, you know, what should I do next? For a lot of people, a smart thing to do is to take some of the money that they have in bonds or they have in CD or they have in a savings account and use it to pay down higher cost debt. And that, that makes particular sense today um, let's even say that you had a 5 or 6% CD and maybe a 4% interest on a, on a mortgage. Maybe back then it didn't make as much sense to pay down your mortgage. But when you go to replace that CD and you can only get 1% or 2% and you're still paying a 4% mortgage or, or 5% or even higher on credit cards or things like that, um, paying down debts is uh, a wonderful thing. And again, I'll continue with this theme of quoting Jonathan to, to Jonathan, uh, in, in, in the book you actually called uh, debt like a negative bond, which I thought was a great term. Um, and just to sort of to give us a slightly more sort of topical flavor to this discussion, one of the things that um, you know, I would like to talk about in the time that we, we have together here is sort of four things that are going on in the economy and in the financial markets that we can say with a reasonable amount of certainty. Beyond those four things I mentioned initially, the four things that we can control, the amount you save, the amount you pay in investment costs, the amount you pay, you pay in taxes, and the risk that you take, there are also, I think, four things that we, we could probably all keep in mind as we look at the economy and the financial markets. And one of them you just alluded to, Jim, which is the short-term interest rates are really extraordinarily low. And the Federal Reserve has essentially told us that they're going to stay that way for a considerable period of time. You know, there is no, there is very little significant risk that we're going to see a sharp rise in short-term interest rates, which means that, you know, if you've got money that is sitting in a savings account or you've got money sitting in a banking account waiting to buy CDs, you're going to wait a long time before you get any sort of attractive yield. So you probably should be looking around and thinking about how else you know you might want to use that money, and that may be mean you taking that money and using it to pay down debt. It may be taking that money and putting part of it into the bond market. But 
whatever you do, you know, if you've got it sitting in a bank account, you've got it sitting in a savings account, you think you're going to see an increase in short-term interest rates, it's just very unlikely that's going to happen in the next couple of years. Okay, Jonathan, um, we're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation. I want to remind our listeners out there that we are live tonight, so if you have any questions, you can give us a call at 412-333-9385. We'll be right back with Jonathan Clements and Jim Lang on the Lang Money Hour. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Jonathan, you were starting to say that there were four factors, and uh, one of the factors is, is that we can expect relatively low interest rates for the foreseeable future. Right. We can expect relatively sh- low short-term interest rates. Short, right. right. Uh, which brings us to the second point, which is, you know, clearly if people, you know, do wake up to the fact that short-term interest rates aren't going to rise in the near future, and they decide to take more risk by stepping into the bond market, you know, they should realize that they're getting into the bond market at a point when interest rates you know, are at historic lows. And you can see this most if you look at the benchmark 10-year Treasury note. Now, you go back to 1981, and the yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury note was at almost 16%. You know, recently, it's been kicking around 2%. You know, over the last three decades, we've gone from 16% to 2%. Interest rates cannot go much lower. They can't go any lower than zero, right, Jim? I don't think so. And in fact, you know, we're in a situation now... Um, that we haven't seen since the 1950s, which is you can get higher yield by buying the stocks in the S&P 500 than you can by buying the 10-year Treasury note. We haven't seen that situation since the 1950s. That gives you an indication of how low Treasury yields have come, and I think if you're an investor, that should make you nervous if you're buying Treasury bonds. You know, it seems to me that there's a huge fear factor built into the pricing of Treasury bonds and that if fears subside for any reason, Treasury yields could bounce back up. And as we all know, when interest rates rise, bond prices fall, and that could be rough on people who own Treasury bonds. It's my sense, and simply my sense, no guarantees here, that the risk if you step out into the corporate bond market or into the municipal bond market is not as great. The, you know, the likelihood to get, of getting really whacked by rising interest rates isn't quite as great in those sectors. But even then, you do need to be aware of the risk. You probably want to favor the shorter end of the curve just in case interest rates do bounce back up. Because, again, we do know that long-term interest rates can't fall much further, and there is a serious risk they could rise. Well, the other thing is you bring up a good point that for income investors, and a lot of people say, well, I want income, that actually many of the stocks and the dividends of the stocks are paying a higher dividend rate than the interest rates of bonds, whether it be treasury or or um, corporate type bonds, and the other thing that maybe some listeners should keep in mind is that the taxation on the dividends is usually quite favorable. Um, usually, uh, as a qualified div- dividend, taxed at fifteen percent or even lower, 
for 15% taxpayers. So that that's actually a kind of an argument for people who are otherwise conservative who are looking for income that they might actually get a higher income from many uh, stocks that are paying higher dividends than uh, uh, a bond. You know, I think that's, that's a very good point. I mean, clearly, you know, if you step into the stock market in such a yield, there is a risk that, you know, prices will fall further. I mean, you have to be aware that the downside on stocks is a lot greater than the downside on bonds. Nonetheless, you know, if you have a reasonably long time horizon and you're looking for income, you know, buying stocks for their dividends doesn't seem like a bad proposition. And, you know, if the market turns around, you know, it could be a twofer. You could, you could get the yield and you could see a nice rise in, in the price of the stocks that you, you purchased. But um, you actually, uh, you know, beat me to the punch on the third point I wanted to make, which is uh, talking about tax rates. You know, at this juncture, even in the heat of the, uh, you know, the presidential uh, nomination battle, the one thing we are not hearing to a significant extent is people talking about cutting taxes. If the debate is about anything, it's about whether they need to rise. And I think that that is uh, an important piece of information for investors. You know, we already know that higher tax rates are, you know, are baked into the legislation unless Congress acts. We know that the Bush tax cuts are going to disappear in 2013 unless Congress acts. We also know that as part of the health care bill, we had an increase in the Medicare tax that will be applied to upper-income earners starting in 2013. So nobody is talking about tax rates going down, and we are already set to see taxes increase unless Congress acts. And so for people that think about how they manage their portfolios, through the rest of 2011 and into 2012, may want to figure that into their plans. And that means, you know, maybe this is the time when you want to do that Roth conversion. Maybe this is the time to get out of that stock where you have big unrealized capital gains and possibly diversify into other investments. You know, this may be the opportunity to do it while we're still at historically low tax rates. Well, it sounds like you're a tax pessimist because I have, I have heard the other side, hey, you know, the... Uh, um, if one of the Republicans wins, we might have a, an even further favorable treatment of, say, capital gains or dividends, and the estate tax is going to be eliminated, et cetera. But um, may, maybe the more balanced view, and and I, I think you you probably have a pretty good handle on it, um, is that, hey, no, in, in reality, tax rates are going to go up and that you should plan accordingly. I, the, the sort of... The caveat there, I think, is not that we're going. There's a ser- there's any real risk that we're going to see tax cuts. I mean, you know, at this juncture, the only question is, you know, where are we going to find more revenue in the f- future? Are we get are we going to find it by raising tax rates, or are we going to go in the opposite direction and really slash spending? Nobody, you know, who's a serious contender for the nomination is out there talking about cutting tax rates. It's really about whether they can hold the line at the, the current level. You know, the, the caveat, I believe, is whether the tax burden somehow gets shifts, not shifted. Not that it gets lowered. I don't think anybody can reasonably expect that. But maybe, you know, we could see the introduction of a national sales tax, and that is used to pay for a reduction in income taxes. Or it could be that we get a reform of the tax code that eliminates a lot of deductions, and as part of that, we might see a slight decrease in tax rates. 
But, you know, absent that, I don't think there's, there's a, any serious chance that we're going to see lower tax rates from and, there. And then even if there is a sales tax that is implemented, and, and some people have said that that's a good reason not to do a Roth IRA conversion, because if, for example, you do a Roth IRA conversion, and you pay a t- bunch of taxes up front, and they eliminate the income tax, and they institute a sales tax instead, you'd have paid tax for nothing. But my inclination would be that if they do implement a national sales tax, that it would be on top of, not in replacement for, the income tax. I don't know if you have a, any feelings or crystal ball on that one, but I guess what I'm saying is I would not plan on the elimination of the income tax for your tax planning, and, and that's particularly important in a working town like Pittsburgh because certainly most of my clients, and I would even imagine most of the people in the city of Pittsburgh, the greatest source of their wealth is actually not their savings account, but it's actually their 401ks and their IRAs and their retirement plans. And I think anybody who is hoping for a change in the taxes that it would be eliminated and go to a sales tax or even a 999 type thing where there would be some income tax but not much, I think we're are going in the wrong direction. I think I would be more inclined to go in the direction that you're saying, which is it's more likely there's going to be an increase in the income tax and to plan accordingly. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Jim. I mean, that's only, you know, my expectation. It's just really a question of, you know, how much the tax burden will increase in the years ahead, you know, and what sort of trade-off the American voters are willing to accept in terms of higher taxes versus reduced spending. I mean, we, re- we face a really tough dilemma in the years ahead, and a lot of it centers on paying for retiree health care. Um, I know there's a lot of discussion about Social Security and whether we need to cut Social Security, um, but the fact is, you know, between now and 2050, the percentage of GDP that is going to get allocated to Social Security payments is only forecasted to rise from 5 to 5.5%. Meanwhile, the amount of GDP, if we continue on the current course, that would have to be devoted to Medicare and Medicaid would go from around 5% today to around 12% in 2050. More than double. Clearly, that is unsustainable, and clearly some really tough choices have to be made. I certainly think we're going to see cutbacks in entitlements, but I think that the extent of the cuts needed to make the numbers work is so great that people will balk, and at least part of the, uh, you know, part of the, the balancing the books is going to come through higher taxes. All right. Well, I'll, I'll give you a choice if you want to keep going with the, I think there's two more issues or something that you brought up, which is Social Security, because you have some very good in, interesting points on your book about Social Security, and I'd be happy to talk about that. Or if there were, I, I don't I, I don't want to leave it hanging if there were if there were one or two other points that you wanted to make. About, sure. There were, there, were, there were four points that I wanted to make that I felt that people could sort of, uh, uh, you know, except with reasonable uncertainty. One, short-term rates aren't going to go up in the near future. Two, long-term rates don't have much more room to go down. Three, you know, tax rates probably aren't going to go down, and there's a serious risk they're going to go up. And the fourth thing that I think we can say with a reasonable amount of certainty is that growth over, say, the next five years 
just not going to be great. And it's for a very simple reason. There is a huge portion of the U.S. population, also a huge portion of the population abroad, that simply cannot afford to spend. And to give you a, a sense of what the scope of the dilemma is, uh, consider some numbers. Back at the end of 1999, total consumer debt of all Americans, excluding student loans, student loans are not included here, the total, debt, total consumer debt of all Americans was $4.8 trillion a year in 1999. At the end of the third quarter of 2008, that number was up to $12 trillion. It went from $4.8 trillion to $12 trillion by the end of by the end of the third quarter of 2008, which, of course, was the height of the financial crisis. Today, that number is back down to $10.8 trillion, partly because of people defaulting and partly because of efforts that Americans have made to pay down debt. Nonetheless, Americans, on average, are carrying more than twice as much debt as they were 11 years ago. Families that are struggling with that debt load, they simply cannot afford to spend the way they used to, and that's going to slow economic growth in the years ahead. We're just going to have a number of years where, because consumer demand is going to be weaker than we would like, the U.S. economy is not going to grow that quickly, and a similar problem exists in a lot of other developed nations. You know, this is bad news, you know. You know, if you're if you're out there looking for a job, or you're if you're in a job you're unhappy about, and you'd like to move somewhere else, it's not going to be great for job growth. Uh, what it means for the stock market is less clear. It could be the stock market has already discounted this, and the current valuations re- reflect a realization that growth is going to be slow. That I can't answer. But in terms of raw economic growth, I think it's pretty fair to say that you know growth is going to be mediocre years ahead. Well, boy, you've really cheered us up. You're saying that bonds are no good, stocks aren't going to go up, um, and taxes are going to go up. So do you have any good news for us? Well, actually, Jim, now, I didn't say the stocks weren't going to go up. Well, all right. All right that, that's fair. You, you said they're, 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 we're going to experience limited growth in the next five years. Yeah, and it could be that, it could be that, that stocks already reflect that realization. I mean, the S&P 500 today is trading at about Twelve and a half times next year's expected operating earnings, which is a you know a pretty modest valuation. Could easily get much more modest, and it could be that the forecasters are wrong when it comes to operating earnings. But you know, based on current forecasts, the stock market does not look overvalued. So it could be that the price share prices will rise from here. I mean, but but but, but I have no crystal ball on that one, and. As for bonds, all I'm saying is, you know, interest rates, long-term interest rates are unlikely to drop significantly from here, and there is a risk they they would go up, and people should factor that in as they consider how much risk they're willing to take if they step into the bond market. Yeah, by the way, you mentioned something that's important, and you glossed over it, um, which is fine, but I just wanted to uh, reinforce what, what you said for a little bit because a lot of listeners might not have caught it. Um, when you were talking about a 12.5, what, what you were talking about was basically a price-to-earnings ratio. In other words, what is the price of the stock or the the uh, shares compared to the earnings? And historically, uh, the price-earnings ratio 
has actually been higher, meaning that, that people thought that, you know, let's say that a stock was worth maybe 20 times what it would have the likely potential to earn. And from that standpoint, um, stocks are not overvalued, if anything, maybe undervalued using historical uh, data. So I just thought that I would bring that up because that's 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 an important point for some people who are um, maybe a little spooked by the stock market and that might be consistent with what you had said, which is the stock market may have taken some of these factors into account in terms of what their price is, is for, for stock is right now. Yeah, I mean, there's two important points to, to people to, rec- to remember about the stock market. Uh, one is, with stocks, as with any other investment, you should generally become more enthusiastic the lower the price gets. You know, this is a fundamental truth of investing that is ignored on a regular basis. When the department stores hold their sales on December 26th, people rush out and buy. Whenever the stock market holds a sale, people panic and sell. It makes no sense. But the second thing people need to remember about the stock market is it doesn't reflect current economic conditions. It reflects the economic conditions that people expect a year or two down the road. So even if things look grim today, if people expect matters to be better, a year or two down the road, stocks could rally sharply. Well, I think it's a, a very good point to to realize that people are not necessarily acting rationally, for example, when the stock is on sale. In fact, I, I've, I've actually had a couple financial behaviorists on the show, and they point out something that I find very interesting, which is that a Vanguard investor or an investor of pick any mutual fund or any sets of mutual funds, that a Vanguard investor does worse than Vanguard. Well, how can a Vanguard investor do worse than Vanguard? Let's just say it's a, a balanced fund or a certain allocation of different funds. And the Vanguard investors, in reality, do get spooked when the market goes down and they sell. And they do get exuberant when the market goes up and they buy, where the you know, the straightforward price of the Vanguard investments almost always do better than the performance of somebody who is doing it on their own because they let their emotions interfere and they don't do what Jonathan Clemens says, which is to pick a asset allocation strategy and stick with it. Don't be shifting um, as the market goes up and down. I mean, almost by definition, the crowd when it comes to investing, is going to be wrong. If everybody is hugely enthusiastic about an investment, it means the price has been bid up. It means all the people who had planned on buying have done their buying, and there's really nowhere for the price to go but down. (laughs) You know, we saw that with real estate in 2005 and early 2006. We saw it with tech stocks in 1999 and early 2000, the crowd is almost always wrong. To be sure, you know, these periods of exuberance often go on far longer than, you know, rational observers believe is possible, you know, and that's why, you know, people tend to capitulate and, and join in the buying frenzy, but eventually 
eventually when when the crowd gets big enough and gets enthusiastic enough there is nowhere for the price to go but down well one of the one of the potential solutions um, that you had that you've always been a fan of you know ever since doing doing all those columns and and, and I will also tell 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 the listeners that I always considered you one of the great champions of a cons- of of the consumer and I remember some of your personal indignations and I don't want to mention the 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 name of the company but there was a cruise line that had a relatively low base but then you know everything was very expensive like oh you wanted a glass of water with dinner oh you wanted um, a, do- uh, a door that closed to the bathroom, and, and, and everything was an extra. And I always considered you one of the great, uh, let's say, defenders of the consumer. And, and your book, which, by the way, I will, I will repeat for the benefit of our, of our listeners, uh, Jonathan's book, which, which really is my favorite financial book, it has just so many gems in it, um, is called The Little Book of Main Street Money, 21 Simple Truths That Help Real People Make Real Money. Again, that's the Little Book of Main Street Money, 21 Simple Truths That Help Real People Make Real Money. And is, is the best place to get that at Amazon.com? Yeah, Amazon seems to, uh, seems to be uh, selling it at a steeply discounted rate, I regret. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear. But, but what's, what's so interesting is, even though, even though the book is maybe two years old, to, to, to me it's, it's really classic thinking and there's there's very few things in here that I think would not apply uh, today, and and some of the things, and I, I don't really want to get off on that because there there are two things I really want to talk talk about before we we uh, um, end tonight, which is social security and immediate annuities. But some of the things I thought were were so I don't, I don't know human things like don't buy things, buy experiences. And uh, you know that that that's that's kind of classic advice that frankly people should be reading, reading, following, whether it's now, two years from now, or a hundred years from now. I really yeah, think for me, um, the little book of Main Street Money was really a chance to take a lot of things that I had thought about and argued for during my 18 years at the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, to put it between two covers and put it into some sort of coherent form and to some extent, you know, present it to, to the readers who used to follow me and say, you know, you, know you, you clipped all those columns. Well, you know, don't worry. You can throw them all away because here it all is in one neat little 200-page book. But uh, a quick segue here onto another topic that relates to what, uh, what Jim just mentioned, you know, my experiences rather than things. Probably a lot of listeners do not know that one thing about Jim is that he's an avid cyclist. <laughs> as, as are you. Jim, I just, want to, I just want to tell you that piece of advice about buying experiences rather than things. When I went out riding today and I had my second flat in two days, <laughs> the experience just didn't seem so good. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear that. And, and by the way, for our listeners, uh, Jonathan... Uh, is an even more avid cyclist and puts up some some pretty impressive times because he was telling me how long it it takes him to to uh, do some pretty significant riding. I'd love to ride with him, but frankly, I don't think I could keep up. Um, Jonathan, I just wanted to tell you um, after Jim's endorsement of your book, uh, I just put that on my Christmas list for several people. <laughs> so, 
Um, I'm looking forward to reading it as well. And I want to um, take a quick break right now, and I want to remind everyone of two things. One is that we are live, so you have about 20 minutes to call in and talk to Jonathan and ask him your questions. You can call us at 412-333-9385. We will be right back with Jonathan Clements and Jim Lang on the Lang Money Hour. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. This is Hannah Haytanen Kay, and I'm here with Jim Lang and Jonathan Clements, noted Wall Street Journal columnist and author of The Little Book of Main Street Money, which is filled with both traditional wisdom, as Jim has been pointing out, and some great new ideas. Uh, Jonathan, two of the, two of the co- topics that you covered in your book and actually you have covered in your columns, um, and, and, I, sh- and I, should, I should tell the listeners, I'm, I'm slightly biased here because... Um, I, in at least some way, participated in 26 of those columns, and it was really one of the uh, um, the highlights of my professional life working with you on these columns. But one of the things that, that you have said in both columns and in your book that people aren't going to like to hear, but something that I agree with strongly, is um, to delay Social Security. And, you know, you're not, not all that many people are willing to say it, and when when I do have somebody who who really knows what they're talking about and has gone through some of the numbers, I do like to bring that point up. So if you could tell um, our listeners a little bit about some of your thinking on uh, when they should be collecting Social Security. So let's assume that for discussion's sake that they are eligible for early so- Social Security now. Uh, they're thinking about either taking it now or maybe maybe waiting until 66 or even possibly waiting until they are 70. I, w- I was hoping that you could uh, illuminate uh, what some of these listeners should be thinking about. I'll be happy to do that, Jim. Um, but you must promise me this. Before we wrap up today, I want to ask you one question about non-deductible IRAs. But I'll, I'll get, So you have to give me, a, give me a minute to ask you that question towards the end of the show. But before, before I, we do that, sure, I'll be happy to talk to you about Social Security. Okay. Why is it? you should delay Social Security. Social Security is one of the most valuable assets that a retiree has. I mean, think about the stream of income that you're going to get. It is at least partially tax-free. It's guaranteed by the government. It rises every year with inflation. And you're guaranteed to get it the rest of your life. Given how great Social Security is, why wouldn't you want to get as much of that income as you possibly can? And the way you get that income is by delaying Social Security from early, the earliest possible age you can get it at, 62, as Jim mentioned, all the way up to 66 or even to age 70. If you, if you delay Social Security from age 62 to age 70, your payments ignoring adjustments for inflation, will increase by 70% or more. That monthly check will be 70% larger or more. And I would even advocate 
spending down other assets in order to be able to delay Social Security. Now, clearly, clearly there is a risk that you will delay Social Security and then you will go under a bus and you will miss your chance to get any money back from Uncle Sam. The good news is, as I always joke to people, this is not a decision you will live to regret. (laughs) Still, it is a risk. But, you know, if you are in moderately good health, and you think that you will live into your 80s, the math suggests that it is worth delaying Social Security. Even if you're in lousy health, if you're married and you were the family's main breadwinner, it may still make sense to delay Social Security because your spouse will likely receive your benefit as a survivor benefit. So even if you don't make it past, say, age 70, if your spouse lives to a ripe old age, your Social Security benefit will live on after your death. I think delaying Social Security is one of the smartest things that most retirees can do. And indeed, I would argue that if the only way you can retire early is by taking Social Security at age 62 or age 63, you probably should not be retiring. Well, I would agree with that. And and by the way, there's a little trick that we don't have the time to go into in detail. But one of the interesting twists that I've learned about Social Security is let's say, for example, you have a husband who is six, let's say husband and wife are both 66. You can have the husband apply for Social Security but suspend collection. Then the, or I I shouldn't say husband, I should say the person who has the most money in, which maybe at least traditionally has been the husband. And then the wife can start collecting on the husband's Social Security. And interestingly enough, it doesn't hurt the husband when he eventually collects on his own record at 70, and then let's say the wife also collects on her level at her own record at 70. So that's a, that's a little trick that not a lot of people know about Social Security. But I did promise you that before we that we ended that we would talk about non-deductible IRAs. So why, why don't we do that? And you even posed it as um, a question to me. So why don't, you, why don't you go ahead and we'll talk about non-deductible Roth IRAs for a minute. I'm sorry, non-deductible <laughs> IRAs. So, so in your, your Lang Money Minute, you mentioned that order in which people should fund different retirement accounts. You mentioned that if your income was you know, too high, such that you, know, you weren't eligible to make regular Roth IRA contributions, and you, know, you weren't eligible to make a tax-deductible IRA contribution, you should go ahead and make a non-deductible IRA uh, contribution. But isn't it the, the case now, Jim, that I, on January 3rd, of 2012 can throw my $5,000 into a non-deductible IRA and then turn around on January 4th and convert it into a Roth IRA and just get my money money into the Roth IRA that way through the back door? That is accurate if you don't have any other IRAs. Um, let's say for discussion's sake that you don't, have any IR, you don't have any other traditional IRAs at all. Then, yes, you can you can do that. You can make a an IRA contribution, and the next day you can convert that to a Roth. If you make a non-deductible IRA contribution, you don't get a tax deduction for it. But then when you convert to a Roth, then there is no tax. So in effect, you have achieved a Roth IRA, so you got around those rules. The caveat... Yeah, and the caveat, as I said, is that, or the downside or the problem is 
the, you cannot specify which IRA you're converting. You have to look at your all your IRAs combined. So if you have, say, a rollover from your 401k that's sitting in a rollover IRA, you have to assume that the conversion to the Roth, the coming pro rata from your entire Roth, your entire IRA combined, rather than just from that specific account where you put the non-deductible IRA. That that that's that's correct. So. So that, that's the problem. If you have other IRAs, you have what are known as the aggregation rules that say you have to aggregate all your IRAs, and then if you make a Roth conversion, you have to prorate the amount. So let's say, for discussion's sake, you, you put in $6,000 into a non-deductible IRA, and you have $100,000 of a traditional IRA. Yes, you can do a Roth IRA conversion of 6000 after you make the non-deductible contribution, but you're still going to have to pay tax on a lion's share of that because when you prorate, the $6,000 doesn't go very far with the 100000 Now, there's a little trick that we do with some of the Westinghouse 401, not just Westinghouse, but other, other people who have non-deductible IRAs and after-tax dollars inside their IRAs, but I'm afraid we're not going to have time for... For, for that one, but um, I am a f- I am a f- still a fan of non-deductible IRAs uh, for people who are earning too much to put in with Roths. If if you do have the opportunity to convert them to Roth the next day, that's a great thing, and why not? But um, it's sometimes in in at least in my world in the financial world, it's not necessarily one huge killer idea that's going to tr- you know transform transform somebody from poverty to immediate unlimited wealth but it's just going to be a series of of good ideas and good strategies so for example even just the Roth IRA if you're 50 or older and even just one spouse works and makes $6,000 or more they can put in $6,000 for themselves and then if there's sufficient income $6,000 for the spouse so you're getting $12,000 that you're transferring from what used to be, let's say, a, some type of investment account where you're paying taxes every year into an account that's going to grow income tax-free for your life, your children's lives, and your grandchildren's lives. So I'm still a big fan of non-deductible IRAs. And if sometime in the future you can efficiently convert them to Roth IRAs, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. All right. Uh, there's one is is that is that good with with non-deductible IRAs or or should we talk a little bit more about them or should we get I into... think you, you certainly covered my question Jim. Okay. So I appreciate that. All right, the 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 one other thing that I remember about your column that was probably at the time not received as well as it might be now is you were talking about with the lack of guaranteed pensions which you know, some teachers have it, some government workers have it, and I guess there's still some people in some industries that still have it. But probably the traditional guaranteed pension is, is certainly becoming more and more rare, and more more and more people are, you know, have money in 401ks and IRAs, and they have wealth, and then, you know, we see this enormous flexibility, and at least a lot of particularly working-class people in, in in the, in the certainly Pittsburgh area and and probably all over the country are probably more interested in not necessarily being fabulously wealthy when they retire, but they want a, a certain guarantee so that no matter what happens, there's food on the table, there's gas on the car, there's shelter over your head, 
and a couple bucks for for entertainment. And one of the issues that you brought up um, was immediate annuities. And I wonder if you could tell some of our listeners uh, actually two things. Why you were a fan of immediate annuities. And by the way, I'm going to distinguish between what you're going to talk about and commercial annuities, which tend to be very high commission type financial products, where the immediate annuity is a much simpler product and typically a, um, a very low commission product. And so, A, a little bit about them, and I remember your, your percentage of 25%, and B, if you think that now is a good time or if people are better off waiting, and then should they include in a, uh, a cost of living adjustment? And by the way, you have about three minutes. <laughs> but don't feel, right. don't, feel well, any, th- don't feel any pressure. <laughs> right. Well, thank you for the challenge. So, so, so here's, here's, here's the deal on immediate fixed annuities. With immediate fixed annuities, what you essentially do is you turn over a chunk of money to an insurance company in for, return for which they're going to cut you a check every month for the rest of your life. It's essentially taking a portion of your retirement savings and turning it into a regular stream of income. People hate this idea. They loathe the idea that they're going to turn over the money to the insurance company, they're going to walk out into traffic, and they're going to get hit by that proverbial bus. And people just cannot bring themselves to do it. In recent years, immediate fixed annuities have generated about $6 billion in annual sales, which, to give you a comparison, that's a bad week in the mutual fund business. People do not like immediate fixed annuities. I love them. I think that people should indeed seriously consider annuitizing a portion of their nest egg so they have that stream of income which, together with the income they get from Social Security, will provide a base level of income that covers their core expenses, takes a lot of anxiety out of their retirement, and allows them to get on with enjoying the rest of their lives. And, that I, and I'm, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid that's it. But, but I, so I was, I was off by about a minute, my estimate. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for another Lang Money Hour, where Smart Money Talks. We hope you enjoyed our discussion and found it educational. And a special thank you to Jonathan Clemens for being our guest tonight and The Little Book of Main Street Money by Jonathan Clemens.